we are going to be in uh, Revelation. So week two here, uh, if you guys did not hear the sermon last week, I would just encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon just from a, the standpoint of building groundwork and getting kind of a basic understanding of, of the book and how we're approaching it here at Center Church. And so I encourage you guys, if you didn't hear that, to go back and try and listen to that. Uh, hopefully it'll be helpful. So Revelation is uh, what's known as apocalyptic literature. So apocalypse, uh, an apocalypse or apocalyptic lit literature, it, it communicates the idea of revelation or revealing or disclosing. And the way in which um, this writing uh, plays out is it's filled with tons of symbols in it, which makes Revelation uh, much trickier to read because we can't just sit down and read it literally. Okay, so today we get our first real glimpse of the importance of symbolism in this book. And so we'll get a chance to jump into that in just a moment here. Uh, as you see the title of this sermon, The Beauty of Jesus, when I'm talking about the beauty of Jesus, I'm not talking about kind of like our celebrity culture, like Hollywood, like look at the beauty. Jesus is beautiful, but it's more talking about his character and, and who he is and what he's done. So just to be clear on that. So the author of Revelation is John. He's one of Jesus' closest disciples, and he is about to start to receive an extended vision uh, full of symbols. And this vision is going to tell of Jesus' past, present, and his future battle with Satan. So Revelation is a book for Christians calling for endurance in faith and ongoing belief in the gospel because the end of all things is at hand. Right now, the end of all things is at hand. This book is a revelation, a revealing of Jesus Christ. So the main point of this book is to reveal Jesus, to show us who he is and what he's done. So we'll obscure its meaning and we'll make it unclear when we try and make the book about us primarily instead of Jesus, or if we try to decode certain world events rather than just trying to learn about who Jesus is. We also talked last week about how this book is intended to be a blessing to those who read it, to those who hear it, and then to those who keep it as well. It's intended to bless you, not to confuse you, but to bless you. So let's read from Revelation 1. Uh, this morning, we're looking at five verses. So let me read these verses. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to listen, uh, to read uh, what's contained in Revelation, and I pray that you would please 
pierce our hearts this morning. I pray that you would please reveal Jesus to us. Where Jesus has become mundane, I ask that you would please open our eyes up, soften our spirits and our hearts, and cause us to be captured by your greatness and by your glory. So have your way in this time. In your great name, I pray. Amen. Okay, just a quick comment here as we get going. In these first couple of verses, we get um, what's known uh, or a depiction of what's known as the Trinity. Uh, so many of you probably have heard about what the Trinity is, the idea that God is three in one. Okay, so in these first couple verses, it's talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Okay, and I, I'm not going to... Uh, unpack this in any depth right now. I just want to acknowledge that. But then as it relates to that, the seven spirits here, I just want to make a quick comment about this, uh, because this is actually a, a pretty convoluted issue. Um, but the seven spirits here is basically another reference or another way of referring to the Holy Spirit. Okay. And so you have to tie some different Old Testament passages back from the Old Testament book of Zechariah and Isaiah, and also another spot in Revelation. I'm not going to do that for the sake of time. I just want to bottom line this and, and say the seven spirits here, it's referring to the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I mentioned last week that Revelation was an urgent, relevant word for us today. And my point of reference last week, last week when I was saying that is that Revelation itself said that it is being written to God's servants, to his servants. I've got uh, the verses we looked at last week up here. So it says, which God gave him to show to his servants. Okay, so this is being written specifically to God's servants. So a fair question then that you could pose back to me would be, but how do we know that what is written in Revelation was written to us specifically as I was saying it is? Moreover, if we look at what we're reading today, it says uh, John is writing to the seven churches that are in Asia, okay? So this would almost seem to push against what I was talking about last week. So in chapters two and three, we're going to read the letters that John wrote to those seven churches, okay? But what we come to understand is that there's more going on here than, as John's writing to those, those seven churches, there's more going on here, okay? Because there was more than seven churches in Asia, okay? So a question we would ask, but why just those seven churches? Why not three churches? Why not 10 churches? Why is there seven churches? Why is John writing to just these seven or just seven in general? And, and this is the beginning of us putting on our interpretive hat that causes us to consider symbolism, okay? So in Revelation, numbers mean something. And, and this relates back to what we were just talking about with the seven spirits as well, okay? Numbers mean something. Oftentimes, we cannot just read the number as a literal number. There is usually something else going on that we need to understand. So the number seven, biblically speaking, communicates the idea of completeness, completion, okay? The idea is that of fullness, 
that there's nothing lacking in this regard. So John, as he's writing this, he's writing in such a way to speak to those seven churches in Asia, yes, but not just to those seven churches. He's writing also to the full or the completed form of Jesus' church. Okay, that, that's part of what's being communicated here as he's referring to the seven churches. So he is writing to us today. Now, now this is the beauty of how the Bible is written. This is the multi-layered reality of the Bible and how we see the effect of a divine author who could foresee this, who could plan this, who could oversee this occurring. So we can't miss this right from the get-go. Okay, we must hear the emphasis that this whole book of Revelation, every part of it, is a personal message to what we are encountering today. What we read in Revelation is a description of events that are occurring today, that, that are occurring repeatedly throughout each generation until Jesus returns. And so the call for us then is to urgently listen and to keep these words. Now, this relates to what I want to talk about here in just a moment, what I want to tease out, because uh, what this is going to raise for us is an obstacle that will be difficult for us to overcome as we read Revelation. So you, as an individual, have likely heard or read or watched things that have unconsciously shaped how you understand Revelation. And, and we've been trained just in life in general to think of things chronologically. So as we read Revelation, we are naturally going to want to read it through a chronological filter. This is unhelpful. This is unhelpful, okay? So the construct of time is an aspect of Revelation that can easily tri trip us up. It will trip us up. We're going to have to continually remind ourselves of how to best read Revelation. So last week, I talked about the last days, right? So when we hear last days, we typically think, oh, three or four days, probably, right? But now the last days, according to the New Testament authors, have stretched for 2,000 years, okay? So, so this does not compute. For many of us, we also read verses like 2 Peter 3 8, where it says, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. That's tough for us to compute. There's a construct of time going on with God that is difficult for us to understand. Okay? And we get a little glimpse of this this morning as well in the verses that we're looking at. So we read twice in the verses that we're looking at, both in verse 4 and in verse 8, this phrase, him who is and who was and who is to come. This is not just a throwaway phrase. John is stating this multiple times, repeating it for a point of emphasis for us. Okay, so the point of Revelation is to reveal Jesus, okay? He is a present word to us today. He was a meaningful word to those in the past, and he is the most relevant word in the future. He spans all of time. He has worked in the past. He is working now. He will work in the future as well, and, and this has been true for all of, uh, all of church history. 
ever since Jesus' death and his resurrection. So John, what he's trying to do here is to get us to move out of our egocentric way of thinking about our own reality and help us to see Jesus' involvement in all of history. He is actively involved now, and he was actively involved prior to our arrival here on earth, and he will continue to have massive influence in the future, even when we are forgotten. This unique aspect of Jesus and him spanning all times also applies to our reading of Revelation. This book is not simply about future events, nor past events. It is a description of events that are, as Jesus was described as being is, okay? These are events that are today, are present, that were past and will be future, okay? And we're going to unpack this more in coming weeks, but what I'm trying to do this morning is just help build some groundwork so we're not simply thinking of Revelation as one-time events in the past or in the future. John is revealing Jesus in a way to help us understand who he is, but this Reality of Jesus will also help us to read and understand this book of Revelation as it speaks of past, present, and future events in history. So we talk every once in a while here at Center Church about our need, both in our personal and our corporate faith journey, to have a well-worn path to the cross a well-worn path to the cross. The intent is that Jesus' death would shape us in meaningful ways, okay? So when we are angered by somebody else's driving or we're angered about anything else, that in those moments, we would be reminded of Jesus' call to die to self because that's what we see on the cross. When we are sinned against by someone else. We reflect on Jesus' example on the cross as he is suffering, dying for our sins unjustly. We find him extending forgiveness. So then we would also be able to extend forgiveness to others when we are sinned against. So we try to centralize Jesus' death and resurrection because these realities, his death and his resurrection are central to the gospel. Now, in the Old Testament, we read of something called the day of the Lord. And many people, when they hear that phrase, they immediately think future. This is when Jesus is going to come back. This is all about Jesus' second coming, okay? There's a real danger here. Because if we think strictly only as the day of the Lord being Jesus' second coming, what we'll do is we'll minimize what has happened on the cross. And this is the crux of Jesus' story. This is the crux of Christianity, what happens on the cross. So what happened on the cross? Jesus took away your sin. If you are a Christian, Jesus took away your sin at that moment. He took God's wrath 
upon himself so that you didn't have to receive that wrath and never have to worry about it as well. He paid your ransom, the debt that you had accrued because of your sin, he paid that off. He redeemed you. On the cross, he sets us free from sin, okay? He makes it so that sin has no power over us. He triumphed over Satan and stripped him of his power. This is what we read in Colossians 2.15, okay? We read there, Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, okay? So here's the thing. If we're reading Revelation in such a way as this future reality, we'll miss the significance of what Jesus has done for us right now today, the victory that he has already achieved, the joy that he offers to us in the midst of our suffering, the freedom that is afforded us, that we don't need to say yes to sin. We have everything that we need to say no to sin, to turn our back on it. And, and so I don't want us to just get caught up in thinking that revelation was in the past or that it's only in the future. This is a word for us today, right now. This depiction of that we get of Jesus that, that we're going to look at right now means something for us today in our interactions with our family as we go to work tomorrow, as we go to school with our friends in all of life. This has something relevant to say to us now. And John does not want us to miss this, okay? Look at the end of verse 5. We read there, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Notice what it says. Jesus has freed. That is past tense, okay? That has present implications for us right now. We are freed from our sins by Jesus blood. That means that you and I are able to walk through life choosing not sin. Sin is not your master. Don't think that way, that, that it is your master. It's not. If you think that way, you're believing a lie. Satan is on a leash. And Revelation is filled with pictures of how Jesus is squeezing the neck of Satan while he gasps for air in his last-ditch effort to wreak havoc and destruction in us and on us. But today, today, we are free. Jesus has freed you from your sins. He let his blood be poured out. He loved you sacrificially. He is the one who is there at the creation of everything that we see outside of our windows right now. He is the one who is more powerful than anyone or anything. He was enslaved. He was killed for your freedom today so that you might have fullness of life today. So the fear that binds you up, the anxiety that you wrestle with daily, the sin that you keep struggling with, that you keep running back to, those things need not be. 
Jesus has conquered all of that. There is nothing, there's no sin that has power over you other than what you give it, other than the lies that you listen to and believe, which is why Revelation is calling us to read this, to listen to what it says. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done. So in the face of your sin, in the face of your fear, in the face of your conflict, John wants us to know what Jesus offers to us. And what does he offer to us? Grace and peace. Grace and peace. Many people, when reading Revelation, might think that this book is intended to scare people. Maybe you've had that feeling. Maybe you stopped reading this book in the past, Maybe partly because you're confused, but also partly because you're just scared by it. We've got to hear John's intention here really clearly. It is not to scare people, but to comfort us and to entrench us in the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. John seeks to move us to say, yes, I see you, Jesus. There is no one like you. You are bigger. You are better. I will not fear anything or anyone. My life is yours. You are what matters. I will go to the stake for you. I will die for you because that is what you have done for me. Jesus, I am living for you. That is what John is going for. The gospel is a word that is built on the bedrock of grace. This is the definition of goodness. Grace is undeserved favor. It is God's kindness expressed towards us when we deserved wrath and punishment. This is the word that John wants us to see and to hear through Jesus. It is only through Jesus that we find the peace that all of us needs in our daily lives. So John then, he's going to go on here and he's going to give some very intentional aspects of Jesus himself. So we read here that Jesus is the faithful witness. Okay, so as we read through Revelation, we're going to read of churches who are not faithful. They are not being faithful in what they've been called to do. We're also going to see the need for Christians to be faithful witnesses in times of difficulty. And so this is going to be a word for us, to call us to be faithful witnesses, that in those moments when we don't know what to say or we're scared, that we would look at Jesus. We would see how he has been a faithful witness to us. It's not about our capacity. It's not even about how well we can do it. It's simply looking at him and seeing how he has been faithful to us and then walking out as best as we are able, being faithful to him, being faithful witnesses. We also read here in these verses that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. We're going to read in Revelation about Christians who have died because of their faith. We're also going to read about people who maybe are like us in the sense that they're terrified of death because of the threats all around them. But this is the hope for those who are threatened with death. 
we have one who we trust in, who we are following, who has been raised from death. And in this, we see that death has no victory. Jesus has conquered even death. We also read here that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. We know that kings do grave evil, okay? We know that kings possess great power oftentimes. But what we're reading here about Jesus is that there is one who will hold them accountable. There is a ruler who is good. Whatever power a worldly leader, ruler might possess, Jesus has infinitely more. Now, John's identification of Jesus in these ways has intentional meaning for what he's going to write in the rest of the book. We have to understand who Jesus is. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is the ruler of the kings on earth. And so when we see rulers pop up that terrify us, we see situations in life that cause us to tremble, that make our knees weak, we need to look at Jesus and to understand who John is revealing him to be and who Jesus has revealed himself to be as well. And then in verses 5 and 6, it lays out numerous ways in which we encounter the, the goodness of God or goodness of Jesus is what we've talked about already. But at the end of verse 6, it illustrates where God intends to move us. He intends to move us to worship. Okay, so then to see Jesus for who he is, and then we say with John, we act with John, we say to him be glory. Okay, and then our lives would would communicate this reality. Our lives would be lived as worship of Jesus, not seeking the American dream, not living merely for our preferences or whatever is comfortable for us, but seeking the glory of God. And, and we're gonna hear more about this in Revelation 4 and 5. It's gonna get really explicit there. Verse 7 then provides another example of the urgency found in this book. So John says there, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. As I read this part of verse 7, I get the sense that it's almost happening right now. Like I want to walk out of my house and I want to go look at the clouds the, the way that John writes this. There's urgency to it. But but this is John's point. He, he's calling us to react in this way. He wants us to read Revelation and see the events that he's talking about unfolding before our very eyes. And to not do so is dangerous. If we think, ah, there's probably another 2,000 years yet until Jesus comes back. What it will cause us to do is to live like the fool that is described in Luke 12, who said to himself, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And I'm not saying there's not a time for relaxing, okay? Clearly, there are rhythms in life where that needs 
to happen. There are times for us to enjoy good meals. But the danger for us is to live for this, to make our lives about relaxation, to make our lives about eating and drinking and being merry and take our eyes off of the sacrificial love of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and then letting that shape us. Alas, what John is going for here is for us to be prepared, to be waiting, longing for Jesus' return. But John affirms he has in mind, at least with this, a future event because we read here, Every eye will see him. All tribes of the earth will wail when Jesus does return. So until that happens, we are to anticipate it. We are to live with anticipation. And there's this aspect in the wording here that should cause us to consider how we anticipate Jesus' return. In verses 6 and 7, we're given two options or two responses. One is, our lives are lived in worship of Jesus. The other is, there's this picture of wailing and mourning and terror. And how we live today will determine how we will respond either when Jesus comes back or when we die, okay? So how do you view Jesus' return today? Are you anticipating it? Are you longing for it? Or, or do you find yourself being like, ah, Jesus, just hold off. There's some things I, I wanna do. My life experience has said those who have really suffered, who have experienced the dark night of the soul, who feel the brevity of life here on this earth, they oftentimes long for Jesus' return, much more so than those who have not suffered deeply, who in many ways have lived the American dream. And th this is why, Center Church, it's so important if we find ourselves just kind of relaxing, eating, drinking, being merry. It's so important for us to function like the church, to shoulder the hardship that others are experiencing, because it helps us to bring near this reality that there's something much better. And there's something much better that we should be longing for, anticipating, and that is Jesus and his return. John is so helpful in these introductory verses as he, as he just depicts Jesus and he speaks to the power that Jesus possesses. He says that he is almighty and he is possessing authority such that he can ride on clouds. He rules the most powerful on this earth, including those who, those who would seek to harm Christians. But we see his all-encompassing reality as his presence spans the present and the past and the future. 
that that he is the alpha and the omega meaning he is the beginning and the end and in all of this we see him as loving specifically in the act of shedding his blood for us so two brief points of gospel application for us this morning first of all center church hear really clearly this is a specific word for us revelation was not just written for those seven churches in Asia. It, it was written to them, but it is written just as much to us as well. We are part of the completed church. So hear these words, read these words, and keep these words. And then secondly, uh, my hope is that we would hear about Jesus, and then we would keep what we are hearing by believing it okay revelation is a book revealing jesus don't lose sight of this throughout the series that is what the intent is he is the only place we can go to to find grace and peace jesus is a faithful witness on our behalf he has died and he has raised again and that will be our story died and raised again if we trust in him he is the one who rules the rulers he is the one who loves the unlovable his spilled blood was for your sins his death frees you from sin and its power so don't just believe that's for your future that is for you today and jesus then in the future will come back on the clouds and he will cinch the leash around satan's neck and kill death forever jesus has always been and he will always be he is almighty there is none like him so center church hear who jesus is believe in him and if we see him as he reveals himself to be the only natural response then is to worship.